Greetings in the name of the Lord. Welcome. Grace be with you. Peace. Shalom. Whatever greeting works. I am Cullen Cressman, and this is my attempt at a podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is our second chapter of 1 Timothy. For those that are new to the podcast, this is Breaking Theology, and the best way to think of this podcast is like an audio commentary. So we're going to talk about the Bible, and that's the whole thing, is going verse by verse, walking through Scripture, seeing what it says, and most importantly, talking about it holistically. So chapter by chapter, making sure that we look at an entire book in context and how to apply it to our lives. So, diving into our second chapter of 1 Timothy, this is a letter to somebody that Paul refers to as a true son, a legitimate son in the gospel that's very dear to him. And these are going to be personal notes, things to teach a young man that is going to be a leader in the church, a minister. And so, this is Paul at the end of his life, towards a time of persecution, and These are going to be good notes for us to look at, not just simply as the last notes of Paul, but if you're thinking of yourself and all of us are called to be uh, missionaries in a sense of we're supposed to be reaching out to our world. How do we present ourselves? How do we conduct ourselves? How do we uh, counteract all of the things that are going on in life? So everyone listening to this podcast, you may not think of yourself as a quote-unquote Timothy But these words of Paul to an individual in the gospel, these words can be applied to us. This is not just a letter to a church, but specifically to an individual that is a called individual to be working within the world. So I think it's very interesting in our day and age that the second chapter starts out with Paul saying that we should pray and we should intercede and give thanks for all people. So that has to be the starting point here. As this first half of the chapter, you have to understand that all of humanity is in view. Everybody. So keep that in mind. We do not want to discount. We do not want to forget a single human being. That's the focus here. Pray for everyone. And then he switches and he says, for kings and those that are in high positions that are going to lead you. Now, for me personally, I've heard this talked about and uh, discussed that we should pray for government officials, for leaders. I think that is true. We should be praying for leaders in all positions, things like that. But I believe that the the emphasis, what Paul is talking about here, we, we can get lost into the idea that we're praying for our leaders so that God will control them or that God will lead them to, you know, to to grant our wishes, that we we pray for our leaders so that they can be godly leaders. I think that we should pray for the souls of our leaders. However, I think that the, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that we do not objectify our leaders. And that is something you think about the context that Paul is living in, a Roman world, Roman society. This is not, uh, this is Uh, pagan uh, ritual practices, uh, worship, uh, social life, all of those things. It's not Christian. He's not saying pray for good leaders. 
It's actually pray and intercede and give thanks, make supplications for these leaders. And he's saying this, that it is pleasing in the sight of God. And we're praying for, um, praying for these leaders, and I would say in a sense that we do not objectify them. That our mission in life is to see all humans as humans. That we are seeing all people as potential opportunities for the gospel. And I think this is pushed further as Paul keeps going. He says that uh, an incredible verse in verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, so what is he referring to there when he says, For there is? He says, He desires all people to be saved. And so that's why I say, that's my connection there, that's why I say that this is an effort by Paul that we don't objectify those that are over us, but we look at them as potential souls that need the one God of the whole world to be in their life as well as ours, that we intercede for them, that we aren't praying for them that they would uh, be good leaders necessarily, that we would pray for them that they would be part of the body. Because if there is one God, he is the God of everyone. He's not the God of one political group. He's not the God of one type of ethnicity. He's not the God of one type of human. He is the God of all. For there is one God, and he is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He has given himself a ransom for all, and that is our testimony. And I love that Paul says, for this, okay, that for, for this in verse 7, He's saying that there's one God, he's the savior of all, and for that reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle to the Gentiles. There Paul is making an example of himself, that I am reaching to the people group that were uh, pushed away from my people. As a Jew, as a, a Pharisee, Paul is saying that I am being appointed to reach out to the Gentiles because there's one God. There is one Lord, and so if there is just one, that means he's the God of the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul says, "This for this reason I'm appointed. And I think that for us needs to be an, an encouragement. And that when we look at ourselves, we think about the people we encounter, whether that is a, a local boss or even government officials, that we do not objectify humans. We do not think about them, and this is applicable in our social media age, that everything is heightened, that people uh, are quick to judge, that we are quick to objectify each other on a screen and just typing in messages back and forth. But Paul is, is making this point clear, pray for everyone, because everyone is God's. They are all his, and he gave his life for all of us. And so for this reason, we are appointed ministers for this reason, because there's one God. That's why we're appointed. I think that's such a, a powerful opener there for his, his son, Timothy. Then he transitions and he starts talking about how we can represent ourselves. That within our culture, within the world that we live in, we should be uh, representative of good, godly conduct. And so I want to give some parameters here because this is going to... Uh, deal with gender and a certain perspective on uh, time frame, uh, biblical culture, where they are in that world. And so I want to give some background 
But in order to do that, I need to, to give you my frame of mind of these verses. So looking at chapter 2, verse 8 through verse 15, that's the section we're dealing with. I want to separate. So if you're looking at these verses along with me, I want you to separate the scriptures from 10. So 8 through 10, make that one section. And then 11 through 15 is a secondary point that Paul is making. And the reason I want to do this is because a lot of times we approach the conversation of men and women in holiness. And if you're just reading this all as one group from 8 to 15, it can seem like Paul is being really unfair to the women. Uh, he's saying, you know, men do this and then I'm going to spend a good handful of verses on the women. It can sound like they're the they're getting the, the short straw. So I want to separate that and see if I can you know, pull this out for you. Um, give me your thoughts, feedback. But verse 8 is very clear, and this is something that's applicable to men. I would that men pray lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. It, this is a, an emotional thing. He, he is talking about both physical and emotional, lifting up holy hands, pure hands in worship. And he is saying that in connection with quarreling, anger. And for all of the guys listening, uh, you will understand this. We get angry and we like fighting, uh, arguing, quarreling. And so I think it's uh, intuitive by Paul here that he's talking about quarreling as, as a general perspective. But also if you have within the church that there are difficulties going on with the men quarreling. And what would typically be fought over in that day would be... Uh, conversations of religion, of uh, how to practice certain types of lifestyle and religious practice. And so hold that in your mind. Then he says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so that's where I want to separate. So you have the point for men and the point for women that he is saying, men do this, women do this. And I do think there are some cultural pieces there about the hair, the gold, um, but in gen a general sense that we are supposed to be modest. We are supposed to be people uh, that we are not drawing attention to ourselves. We are not trying to catch someone's eye. And that was something that would be uh, with the gold and hair and things like that, that would be a way to catch someone, to to kind of get them to look your way. And so Paul is saying, let's be uh, people that represent God well. So men, you don't need to be quarreling. You don't. You need to get control of your heart. Women, you don't need to be attracting unwanted attention. You need to make sure that you are modest. And so those are our practical things that Paul is addressing. It gets really interesting when you get into the next section from 11 to 15. And so I want to talk about that, especially for our modern church today. And so he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, this can be a passage of scripture where people, I've been asked questions this by students uh, when I'm, I'm teaching there, they want to know, okay, so what about women? Well, first off, 
let's look at our practice. If we believe that women are supposed to literally be quiet, then we should not have them teach in Sunday school lessons. We should not have them uh, sing and lead in worship. You know, if you're going to make an application that women should be quiet within church, period, then we should give a, a legitimate application and not have women uh, speak up in church in any way. But we don't do that in practice, or at least the churches that I have been, they don't practice that. And I think that is correct. I think that if you're looking at the rest of Paul, you see that he affirms women and he is even okay with a woman being in a role of leadership. So if you look at Romans chapter 16, where he talks about Phoebe, he addresses her as a, a deacon. And so I see within all of Paul that he affirms women. And so when we're looking at this passage, how does this fit within the rest of Paul? But then also, how should we apply this to the church today? And so a point I want to pull out for you is to think about our modern context is we are after um, women's rights, uh, feminist movements, uh, things like that, that are pushing for uh, women to, to be elevated, to be equal. And so I support all of that, but we also have to recognize that that is where we are culturally. And so if you go to uh, school, so I am uh, in the U.S., so if anybody listening to this in another country, where we have schools, boys and girls go to school together. Girls are allowed to attend school. You have to understand that within our current context, we could look at this and be like, oh my gosh, Paul, you're telling women to be quiet and to learn with with submission, and we think of the term of submission as a loaded term towards women, and we think, oh my gosh, he's telling him to be quiet. But I want to point out for everybody that in this context where Paul is, women were actually uneducated. The radical point that Paul is making here is that he is affirming that women should learn. Okay, don't miss that. Paul says... In a time, in a period where education for women was very rare, very rare, Paul is telling the church, he's, he's telling Timothy, a leader of the church, that women, he says, let the women learn. Okay, so stop there, and that would fit our context more. We have a lot of baggage on the term submission. We have a lot of baggage on the term quiet. But if you stop there, do you realize what Paul is saying? Timothy, let the women learn. Okay, so that's just a, a big point right there. But then you also have to understand that Paul is giving a, a piece of guidance that would apply to not just women, but men also who are a novice. And so you can see this argued by a scholar by the name of Craig Keener, where he presents uh, research showing that a novice, a man, a young man that's going to school that is learning, they are also told, to learn quietly and in submission. And that is just a practical principle of learning, is if you are going to learn something truly, then you can't be speaking over the teacher. You can't be taking authority over the person that is teaching you. You can't assume that you know more than your instructor. And so Paul is actually putting women, and what I'm understanding from this passage is he's putting women 
on the same uh, footing as men. The difference is that they are most likely older, they're already grown, whereas the young men, this is already a natural part of their community. So he does not have to give that admonition to the men because that is part of their education system, part of the young men to be going and learning and studying the, the word of God, studying the things of God. Here Paul is saying, Timothy, let the women learn. And so remember he said, that men are prone to quarreling, you know, so he's saying don't quarrel. And a lot of those quarrels would be uh, arguing about religious things, stuff like that. Men were usually the ones that were handling that. And if you think of a marriage unit, that is typically what's going on is the men are the ones who were educated. And so they are the ones that are thinking of those religious conversations. But if you jump to chapter five, I just want to throw that out there right now. We'll cover that in another episode, but in chapter 5, Paul addresses the the need and the area that Timothy needs to uh, to talk about widows, young particularly young widows that are prone to gossip and be busybodies because they are uninformed. And so if you think about the picture here, you have a young woman, a possibly a a collection of young women, which is why Paul feels the need to address it in chapter 5, but a group of young women that are widowed, and they, that means they are no longer with a husband that has been taught, or they have learned those things, and so Paul here is actually saying a positive thing, let the women learn, but make sure that they don't uh, cheat themselves, don't jump the gun, but you need to put yourself in the position of even a young man has to be quiet and in submission to those that are teaching so that they can truly learn. And so we don't want to read our modern context into this, that we think of those terms as loaded, submissive, quiet. But what Paul is saying is let them learn. And you also see here where he moves forward, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and became a transgressor. Okay? I think, you know, so Paul uses the story of Adam and Eve in multiple places in his letters. And here I think that he's using it simply as a picture of what I just described to you about the educational system and passing of information. That the husband is given the commands of God. He's the one that's educated. And then he is responsible for educating the woman. I think that what Paul is addressing here is when you look in Genesis, that God gives a command to Adam, and then when the serpent is tempting Eve, you notice that she says something different in response than what God told Adam. And so that that movement of information from God to the first person that was created to the next person that was created, it seems here that Paul is showing that a person who is not in a position to learn will be prone to be a transgressor. And so let the women learn. We need to make sure that the community is educated in the things of God so that they aren't prone to transgression. And so let them learn. Yet, so this is a, an additional note in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And this is a, a point of encouragement because there were different uh, ideas and practices, um, not just within Judaism, but within the pagan society also is death and childbirth was a regular thing that could occur, that could happen. They don't have modern medical uh, assistance, things like that. And so it was a, f a fearful thing. And Paul is admonishing them and letting them know that being part of the community here, being part of the people of God, that there is a comfort, that they are not going to be like the other people, that those things, and again, I think this is a reference to chapter 5, that they don't need to be distracted by the pagan and cultish practices and fears that are around them, but let them learn. Let them understand the things of God, and this will actually be the thing that saves them from the fear of childbearing, that the pain, the uh, curse that you have on Eve from the garden is not going to be a curse to death, but it is going to be something that they can be comforted in, that the Lord's hand will be on their life. And so, if you have any additional questions, any thoughts, feel free to email me. That is all of chapter 2. And so, I want to encourage you, uh, let me know what you think. Message me on social media. This is Breaking Theology, where we're just going to go verse by verse. We're going to talk about the things of God. And I am looking forward to chapter 3 in our next episode. This is Breaking Theology. See you next time.